Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 69 of the thousand tiny steps. I am one episode away from completing season six and my 70th episode. That's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of talking. People who know me would not be surprised at all. So if you're watching me, you can see I'm wearing these little Christmas light necklaces. So I'm recording this still November, but you'll be listening to it between Christmas and New Year's, that week, holiday week. As a longtime educator, the Christmas and New Year holidays, that whole chunk of time was, was always a vacation week, time off in school. Kids don't go to school. Parents have to struggle with childcare, all those fun things. But as somebody that was an educator and used a life in education, Christmas isn't, isn't a separate holiday from New Year's. It's all sort of one big chunk of time. And since Molly's death, this has been a really difficult chunk of time. I've talked about it before. I know last year at this time when I was just a new podcaster, I was doing the Molly season now, and I talked a lot about how our holidays changed because of her death. Holidays in and of themselves are time markers. They're the same year after year. And so it's an easy way to compare. I remember when I finally, you know, was married to Kenny and we were raising Gracie and Molly. And I was so excited to provide traditions for them. And I remember the time I spent dating David and being connected to his family. I loved that they did things year after year together. They did holidays together. They did vacations together. And you could count on these things. In the uncertainty of life, you could count on these things. These very things become horrifyingly difficult in times of grief and trauma. And it wasn't really until I was recording this season and really reliving my sexual abuse and what that has done to me as a human being and what it continues to do that I realized that a lot of my issues around holidays stem from this thing called disenfranchised grief. And I came upon this a couple of episodes ago in doing research for talking about the different ways that we grieve. And I'm taking a grieving class with David Kessler to be a grief coach. My initial relationship with grief, of course, I relate to Molly's death, but close second to that was my job loss and all that went into the day that I woke up and didn't have a job and I was beside myself. I was a mess and I couldn't believe I'd gotten there. And so those two things, Molly's death and the loss of my 21-year teaching career, are two of the greatest losses of my life, followed very closely by, of course, all of the innocence lost as a child, being the victim of child abuse. We spend so much time as human beings trying to make believe we're fine. You know, the public persona, what happens at home stays at home. I remember one of Coach Looney's biggest pieces of advice to me when Molly died was, cry all night, work all day. That when you get up in the morning, you put it away. It's not for other people to deal with. He lived that. I remember after Mrs. Ludi passed away, he didn't want to talk about it. It was his private thing. And if I tried to show any love or affection to him around her passing, he shut me right off. No, 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 no. And you know what? That's how he coped. And that was his generational 
you know, sort of example of coping with things. You put them in a box and carry them about. And then when you weren't going to bother anybody, you could open the box and feel the feels. I'm not quite that private as anyone who knows me knows. In thinking about this episode, I had a bunch of other ideas. I was going to talk a lot more about relationships. But I realized that you're listening the last week of December. Christmas has just passed. New Year's is coming. And then the year ends. And now we're into a new calendar year, a new Gregorian year. And we have all of these ideas that we should have new beginnings. And as I have thought about this episode, talking about holidays as a grief trauma-stricken human being, I have so many things that come to mind and so many sort of aha moments and realizations. I know that every year when you have the year start over, I wanted to make sure I was better than I was the year before. One of the biggest arguments Kenny and I had, and we continue to argue over this, was in January and we had agreed, you know, sober January, everyone dries up and tries to lose their holiday weight and start the year off healthy. One thing that our relationship with Kenny has created in me is the habit of drinking daily. Right now I'm not drinking daily, which is exciting, but it's, it's an issue for me all the time that in my day-to-day home life, I struggle with. And I remember coming home and we had been, you know, it was the middle of January and I think it was a dance competition weekend. I don't think I had lost my job yet, although perhaps I had. No, I hadn't lost my job yet. It was different. The girls were little. What I remember is Kenny was watching our Patriots game and he was drinking a beer. And I just was like, what are you doing? We're not drinking. And he looked at me and just said, well, it's only beer. And I remember at that time just being a bit distraught. Come on now, beer is alcohol. And if you want to drink that much, just admit you want to drink every day and you don't want to get better. And we had a big conversation that day around year to year. And Kenny is very much a creature of habit. In January, you do this. And in February, you do this. And he doesn't necessarily look at getting better in self-improvement. He really just looked at, I like my life. So I like my life just fine the way it is. And and I've never, ever felt that way. And I, and I realized that while he did have some, you know, traumatic times in his childhood, more standard traumatic times, He really didn't have any reason to want his life to be better sometimes. He had a pretty good life. I couldn't wrap my head around it because from my earliest memories, I always wanted some sort of self-improvement. And I always felt like I needed to improve and I needed to do a better job. As an athlete, a competitive athlete, as a mother, as an educator, now as a podcaster and and sort of a public figure, public servant, a school board member, I'm always trying to do better. I always feel like self-growth is necessary. As an educator, you have to get your teaching certificate renewed. And with that comes education. You have to go to seminars. You have to learn new techniques and get better at the ones you already know. So life to me is a process of of self-improvement. Also, spiritual improvement and getting closer to the God or the universe or whatever that might be. Intellectual improvement, reading new things, keeping up on new authors and new scientific discoveries. Life is only life if you have perspective. There's a school board member currently, who is very young and idealistic. And this person has a quote on their Facebook page, encouraging people to run for public office. And that how disgusted this person is by the old white people that push their old white people agenda. And, you know, at first I took offense to that because I am in fact old and white. (laughs) She's young and white. It's one, so she'll figure it out one day. But I just realized that in her life and at her time, that's as far as up the mountain as she is. Her perspective is such that anyone older and whiter than her must be outdated. And when you are actually older and whiter, higher up the mountain, your perspective is a bit different. I had a wonderful drive the other day with a good, good friend of mine, Elliot, and we were talking about all sorts of things, all sorts of social things and gender equity things and 
you know, the transgender community. We just talked about a bunch of things. And we talked about the different ages and how people are at different ages. And Elliot was recalling when they were in their early 20s, how they thought they knew everything. You know, I just, I know everything. <laughs> and, you know, of course, you know everything you can in 22, 23, 24 years. But 10 years later, you're higher up the mountain of life. You're further along the hike. You can turn around and see a much bigger vista behind you. And so I look at my grief process and my ways that I deal with these things, specifically to right now holidays in this way. As a youngster, so what were the holidays like for me as a little girl battling a double life? Well, the biggest thing with child abuse, and this is probably across the board child abuse or any kind of abuse in a family, domestic violence, is putting on the fake thing is okay. You know, so women that get beaten wear sunglasses and turtlenecks and long sleeve shirt, and they try to make believe that they're fine. There's a scene in the movie, The Prince of Tides. I've mentioned this scene before. The family gets assaulted by these crazy, crazy people. And they all get beaten and raped, all of them. The son, the daughter, the mother. And their very abusive father isn't home. And so they quickly neaten up the house and they have their clothes on and they're sitting at the table eating as if everything is fine because it needs to be fine. It has to be fine. And the daughter's dress is on completely inside out. And it just struck me. It was such a strong, strong example of how I felt as a child, that couldn't the world see that my dress was on inside out, that nothing was okay, but everything seemed okay because I got up in the morning and got dressed and went to school. All of my childhood memories of holidays are relatively positive. We oftentimes didn't have a lot of money, but we had traditions that we did. We got a Christmas tree. We usually got them from the Lions Club because my father belonged to the Lions Club. So Fern's Oil Company on North State Street had Christmas trees, and that's typically where we went to get them. And, you know, we didn't cut them down. We weren't of that variety. We just went and got a pre-cut tree. We decorated them. We had the big colored lights, angel hair and tinsel, all the 70s decorations on the trees. Some of my best young memories as a child for Christmas are sitting in the living room by the Christmas tree lights with my mom when it's all decorated and just having alone time with her. When I started going to church all the time, I would sing in the midnight service at, you know, the Christmas Eve midnight service. And so I would get home in the middle of the night and sometimes Santa had been there, sometimes he had not. And I can remember some precious times with my mom then as well, as she was organizing everything and, and making sure everything would be ready for us in the morning. Other holidays, you know, my New Year's Eve memories, I'll go back to Jackie Dore and all the fun things we did on New Year's Eve as kids, listening to Dale Dorman count down the top 100 hits of the year on AM radio, WRKO. And all of those things that signified that everything was okay, that life was marching on. Here we are again. We've made it to here again. Those feelings now in 59-year-old 2022 Barb give me a knot in my stomach. It just makes me feel like I'm treading water, that here I am back where I started. I remember my dad teasing me about running track because we can go nowhere the fastest. And he's right, start and finish in the same place. And I feel that way sometimes now around traditions because... When the tradition comes back, what have you accomplished since the last time? What matters now? What will you do? All of my growing up, I always felt that holidays were a bit of a hypocrisy. You put on fancy decorations and outfits. You put out fancy traits of food, you know, Christmas candies and well-frosted cookies. You sang Christmas carols. Family came over. You opened presents. You sat around a table and had Christmas dinner. All of these things you did. And they indicated that you were living as you should. 
well-adjusted, happy American family, enjoying the beauty of Christmas. When in fact, there was nothing beautiful about it at all sometimes. It's all about what you want people to think. That's how it felt to me. In college, and then becoming a pie in my early years before I was married or settled down, Christmas is a Christian holiday or a pagan holiday or a bunch of things. In the Baha'i faith, it's not a Baha'i holiday. So American Baha'is often celebrate Christmas because it's such a cultural piece of, of the fabric of being an American. And, you know, your kids would sort of stand out in uncomfortable ways, I think. We always had a big Christmas tree and celebrated Christmas. We also celebrate the Baha'i holidays. So it's not like I'm choosing one over the other. But in my 20s and early 30s, married to Eric, I didn't celebrate Christmas, not at all. I had this little tiny little fake tree and I, I hung earrings on it. That's how little it was. In one little string of lights, like 10 lights. But I didn't even do that every year. And I didn't, I didn't miss it. And this is what's sort of interesting, is I truly did not miss Christmas at all. I didn't miss it. Our Christmas decorations all stayed in boxes for years. My parents sort of stopped celebrating. I remember they cut way back on Christmas when Jonathan and Johanna were still relatively young, and that was difficult. But when I got married to Kenny, actually, I bought a house before I was married to Kenny. And when I established a residence and then married Kenny, Christmas became a big thing again. In the Christmas tree and decorating it and having all that, the lights. And, and Kenny was fun with that. Kenny is a champion around these things, I will say. We get the tree and we decorate it. We play Christmas carols. We do eggnog. You know, we had a whole tradition around it. And when Molly and Gracie were really big enough to help, it became one of their favorite things. Molly's last Christmas, we went up to Arnie's to get a tree and Gracie and Molly took all these pictures from underneath the trees and they had this wonderful time. And, you know, things were terrible for Kenny and I at that time. That was a really traumatic year prior to Molly's death. I think now it's one of my issues around Christmas is that we were able to push the pause button for that Christmas in 2015. Christmas was amazing. Girls had amazing gifts. We went all out. It was a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. And the tree was beautiful. And... You know, I didn't take the decorations down for months, but we haven't had them up since. And how I deal with it is, and how we dealt with it as a family when Molly died was to stop. Molly loved holidays. And so they just are so connected with her. And they're also connected now for me with traditions that indicate a giant black hole. I've often said that it's easy to go to Disney because Molly never went, it's not missing from Disney because she was never there with us. Do I miss her? Yes. Do I ache for her? Absolutely. But there's nothing in Disney that I look at and remember looking at with Molly in the picture. It was never there. When she died, we made a pact that we would do no holidays for that season. And we stuck to it. And we've actually really not done holidays since. We've eased back in. You know, we have a bit of a Thanksgiving. And Gracie's getting older. And so she spent Thanksgiving with her boyfriend's family, which was perfect. Because that's a family that can celebrate it in a traditional way. And she can take part in a celebration that isn't fraught with the one that's missing. As much as I love my family, it's very, very difficult to make believe I'm fine. And so much of holidays is making believing you're fine. I know in my grief groups, a lot of people go all out for the holidays. It doesn't interfere at all. And in talking to some of those moms and dads and families, they find comfort in it. The traditions comfort them and remind them that life is going on. And that's fine. If I've learned anything in grief, it's that you can't dictate what it should be like for anyone other than yourself. So the disenfranchised grief, for me, compounds the holiday issue. When I look at my years with David and how much I loved their Christmases, their New Year's, and their Fourths of July, and their Easter's, all of it. St. Patrick's Day, corned beef and cabbage. They truly did it all. And, you know, lasagna on Thanksgiving. All those wonderful, wonderful 
traditions that I imagine are still carried on by all those bonnet children. <laughs> what I liked about it was that it represented something I had never had. Yes, I had a family. Yes, we got together on holidays. But I had this overriding, deep, deep, dark, horrifying secret that even after I told, I still had to keep secret. So for me, nothing was ever okay. I was that little girl in the Prince of Tides with her inside out dress. And when I lost my job, it was the same thing. There was so much shame and humiliation in that grief. That all happened this time of year. I hadn't had a hearing or officially resigned that whole Christmas holiday. That whole holiday season of 2010 was terrible. And it all fallen apart so quickly, I didn't even know what to do. It was the day after Halloween until like the early January. And so it's not surprising that this time of year is fraught with anxiety for me and not wanting to make believe I'm fine. We as a family have gone round and round. Kenny will pretty much do whatever. In the years after Molly's death, two or three years after, we finally put lights on the fence. I know some neighbors were really happy to see it. That's a really hard acknowledgement. Oh, good. You're putting up lights again. Everyone just wants us to be back to normal, and there's never a normal now. Our normal has dead Molly in it. Anything that we do isn't at all replicating what existed before Molly's death. It can't. So we have the Molly B. Christmas tree in our house, that beautiful pink tree that Emelina Haggett and her mother, Stacy made for us. And we put lights on it, and actually, we need to do that now because Thanksgiving is over. And that has been our Christmas tree. We were talking about Christmas the other day, Gracie and I, and I just said, I want to rearrange things so we can at least have a semblance of, you know, the Molly B tree looking like a Christmas tree and everything. And Gracie said, I would love to get a tree and decorate it. I just know that you don't want to. And that stayed with me. It sunk in me because what do I do now? There's three of us. It's not just all about me. And then we have Jack. So <laughs> Jack is coming upon his second Christmas. And last year he went to Disney at Christmas. Next year he'll do the same thing. We're repeating our Disney traditions. We flew to Tampa last year and we had Jingle Jangle and we went to the beach and we went to Disney and we did what we did. So is that a bad thing to do for Jack? No, but what I'm doing is sort of recreating the same thing, recreating a tradition. Oh, every year at Christmas, we go to Disney. So, you know, I've, I've gone round and round with what to do. And I know as families grow and divide, I was at the gym the other day and listening to one of the other coaches talk about having to divide time between all the different families. Like, you know, she's got in-laws and there's, they have their traditions and then she's got her family traditions and then they have their own family now. And, and what do we do and how do we reconcile all of this? You know, that's, that's a huge piece of it. In my marriage to Kenny in the years when we were, when everything was okay, you know, his kids are very involved in his ex-wife's family. She's the local one. So their Christmases are very wrapped up in his ex-wife's family, which is fine. It just meant that they were never a big part of ours. But that gave us the freedom to do what we wanted on our Christmases. We weren't beholden to anyone else's traditions. Thanksgiving dinners, there were times that Kenny flew down and spent time with his family. But once Gracie and Molly were around, we wanted them here and we had them at our house. When Jonathan and Lonlon had Jonah, suddenly they were there sometimes. Kathy and Ricky hosted a few times. So holidays for me have, have very much been family oriented. And now what to do? As I create a life for Jack, that of course is surrounded by Molly and includes Molly in every conversation. You know, I'm, I'm a bit fraught sometimes as to what to do. I do know in looking at websites on grief and the holidays that every holiday can have its own unique sort of issue. I don't know that I will ever comfortably celebrate Mother's Day again. And that's because we unplugged Molly the day before Mother's Day. And so that was the first 
realization. That was the first day of my life that I really woke up without Molly. She wasn't plugged in there, breathing next to me anymore. She was gone. And the, the world went on. And that, that was a really hard May 8th, 2016, forever and always. So that holiday, the way that I ask people to commemorate Mother's Day for me is to leave it alone. I don't want to hear it. And if people that know me insist on recognizing it, then they're doing it for themselves and not for me. Because the best Mother's Day gift for me is to just forget about it. I don't want to know. My birthday has been the same way. You know, I, I used to be all about my birthday. Now I, I just prefer not to think about it. Time and age has been forever changed with Molly's death. I lose track of time sometimes. I have this big chunk of time missing. There's a big piece of me that is still in 2016, still waiting for her to come back. Every passing holiday, she gets further and further away. And I think this is another another tricky piece of holidays, especially for parents that have lost children or children who have lost parents ahead of time. Not that losing your 90-year-old mother isn't difficult. You've lived your whole life knowing her. I know that this is Kenny's first Christmas without his mother being alive. But you know, as life goes on, you know that this day is coming. It's the natural order of things. It's not out of the ordinary for people in their 90s to pass away. When you're 10 and you lose your 30-year-old mother, that's a whole different story. And holidays, I'm sure, can become tricky. So, you know, when you look at the different ones, for me, by the time it was Christmas, Molly had been gone for several months and we'd had a chance to sort of figure out what we were going to do. We realized that we just didn't want to be around. We didn't make it to Disney the first couple of Christmases. We just went to Amelia Island and saw Davy and Courtney. And two years in a row, we had terrible weather, cold and rainy. It was awful. I would never want to go back and relive those holiday seasons at all. I do know that I also believe sometimes that holidays can show how unbelievably hypocritical people are. When I look back in my life and in people that I know, <laughs> I know people in my life that go all out decorating, ridiculous amounts of decorations, complaining the whole time. We have to do it now. If we don't buy a tree now, they're going to be sold out. Getting it all done and making sure it's watered and this horrible, like everything is a chore. Well, if it's such a chore, why do it? Well, because it's Christmas and so your house must be decorated. I can't get sucked into that. I don't care. <laughs> and this is this is the new part of me. I remember... Again, when Molly and Gracie were little, I would spend hours wrapping Christmas lights around the trees in the enchanted forest. Our yard was just a fairyland. And I remember Zach Emerson, who I coached with, just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to do for my kids. I don't know if he decorates his yard or not. But, you know, our neighbors across the street, they had the blow-up ghosts and pumpkins at Halloween. And now they have the blow-up Grinch and Santa in their yard. And, you know, Jack looks out and sees it. And I think, okay, you know. I really, I can't deny him all this ridiculousness just because Molly isn't here anymore. It's difficult. I'm recording this well before Christmas. You'll be listening to it after Christmas. We'll be in Florida when this is coming out. I probably won't have gone all out with decorations. Each year, it's a little bit more. We're sort of back to having relatively traditional Thanksgiving dinners. That started with COVID and, you know, Kathy and Rick and then being around and then we just sort of built on it. We're having the my Christmas family, my mother's family, the Bond family Christmas has been happening since the 60s. It's like uninterrupted, 50 years of Christmas every year. It used to be on Christmas Eve, and now it's the week before Christmas. And of course, COVID put a kibosh on that, but we stopped going after Molly died. I couldn't host it anymore, and I couldn't deal with it. And so Uncle Jimmy hosted it. And after a couple of years, Kenny and I went, and we did the best we could. Since Molly had never been there, didn't feel like she was missing from it. I couldn't imagine having a big Christmas shindig at my house. I can't. This year, Jonathan and Lon are hosting it. They've never hosted it before. So that will be 
So we'll be at a place that Molly has been, but we never celebrated Christmas up there. I don't know if this makes any sense. And I don't know, those of you who are listening, if you can relate to any of this. I do know that when you're hiding family secrets like abuse and, and mistreatment, putting on a happy face can feel like a big fat lie. And there were times that it made me angry. I can remember some Christmases as being much better than others in terms of the amount of toys under the tree. I know that alcohol wasn't a big piece of my childhood, but oftentimes it surrounded holidays and Christmas could be a time where people drank too much. In my adult life, it's been many things. And now in, in this part of my life, in my post-Molly, no longer talking to Roy, figuring out what to do next, Penny. And now I have this beautiful baby who loves life and deserves all the happinesses of the holidays. I guess I just, what I want for him is for it to be genuine. I want it to be real. I want it to matter. So at Disney Christmas, what a great way to spend Christmas. And I don't think there are too many kids that would complain about it. But Santa, where does Santa come here? You know, I haven't invited Santa back yet. I don't know when I'm ready. But I can't wait too long because I have this little boy that lives in the United States of America, which is a very Santa-oriented place. There's a really, really good book that I like. It's called Michael Rosen's Sad Book. And it's illustrated by Quentin Blake. And it's a really, really, really good book about somebody that's lost a child and how they make believe they're happy. This is me looking happy, but I'm not happy. And it basically talks about it's okay to feel both things and that there are times in life where you will be feeling both things. I can remember the week that we unplugged Molly. I have a lot of really happy memories from that week. It was a horrifying week, but there were times when I laughed and the laugh was genuine because I was connecting with people and talking about this beautiful little girl. So in that tragedy, there were moments of joy. And I know that there are times when it's okay to be happy, even though you're sad. And that people that have trauma and grief spend their whole life looking one way and feeling another. And in this book, the sad book, it talks about that, that there are times that I'm, I may believe I'm happy. There are times that I do it so that other people aren't uncomfortable. There are times that I do it for self-preservation. I know for me, there are times I have to just put things out of my head and get busy. And that was a big one. When I think of how Roy deals with trauma and how so much of my adult life traumas are centered around him in that relationship, he's very much put it away. You can't do anything about it anyway and get busy. And that's sometimes incredibly helpful. And I think sometimes that's where CrossFit and working out comes into play for me, especially this time of year. You know, if I can be busy and if I can be busy in my body, so I'm, I have to focus on what I'm doing because I'm tired and I have to keep pushing myself. Very, very consuming. It's emotionally and mentally consuming in a way that's super helpful for me. And so I'm lucky. It's also a time that people can, can fall back into and fall back into alcohol and drug use. Very difficult time for those with mental illness. And I don't think it's because the holidays force us to be happy. I think sometimes they remind us that we're not. And what do you do with that? What do you do? around a holiday that you have to feel something you're not. The other piece is being forced into tradition. You have to buy presents. It's what you do. Well, okay, it might be what you do. I have had Christmas stockings and presents for Gracie every year since Molly on some level. But it stopped. Her last great Christmas was 2015. And so what do we do now seven Christmases later? So anyway, this book, The Sad Book, what it does is it gives permission for people who are sad to be sad that sometimes that's life. If I were to ask for anything in my dealing with holidays is that people just let me deal with them the way that I do. I don't want to be told that Molly would want me to decorate a tree 
no one knows what Molly would want me to do. I know that Molly would want me to be genuine and do what I felt. And I think that's what she would want for me. So I do things like wear these ridiculous Christmassy necklaces. Behind me is a headband of a Christmas tree. I'm leaning to the left. Molly would wear these headbands, Christmas headbands. She has a Santa one. I actually think I gave it to Tennessee, Sky McGregor, whose daddy's office I'm sitting in. And she had one in the summertime with flags for the 4th of July. She was so big into holidays. And I think, I think initially that's why I couldn't bear the holidays because her not being a part of it was just something I couldn't wrap my head around. Easier now, seven years into this journey, to pull her into it and to bring pieces of Molly into the holiday. We do a basket for the Christmas show and we fill it with Molly things. In the first couple of years, I cried the whole time I went shopping for those things. And I'm not like that now. It's a bit different. You know, a lot of the things we can just buy quickly. They don't evoke the memories that they did once, but they are certainly, you know, there and ever present. It's a nice way for Molly to be remembered. And we use the money to support a scholarship in memory of Diane Peterson, another CDA connection that passed away last year. And we have a lot of Rachel Hunger in that basket. So it becomes a way to keep a lot of people alive in the most positive of ways. I remember, and I'll sort of begin to wrap up here, you know, anything that happens to commemorate something, anything that happens regularly, year after year after year, marks the passing of time. And time becomes very different when you're struggling from a traumatic event or the loss of somebody. I was first abused as a young girl, seven or eight, eight years old, maybe, maybe nine. So there's a part of me emotionally that, look at me, look at me, look at me, that remains that age. I think sometimes the approval I want is the approval that a young child would look. Come see my room, come see how clean it is. These things come to my head sometimes. I often think I'm stuck at 17. And when I look at my high school years and my romantic involvement with a teacher, as unscary as that was, it was traumatic because it was wrong and I knew it was wrong. And now I was suddenly participating in something that now people could blame me for. That was incredibly difficult. It's a huge piece of me that stays that age. That's also when I began running and found this amazing way to love my body. So much of my emotional self stays at that age. And then I look at, at how time sort of blew up for me in 2010 and then again in 2016. And I know that all of that made me suddenly feel very old. I'm going to be 60 on my next birthday and that brings me a lot of stress. Mostly because I think of how 40 didn't seem all that long ago. And if 40 wasn't that long ago, then 80 isn't too far ahead. And that's where I start to get all we doubt about the passage of time. But then from 40 to 80 is 40 years. And when I think of 40 years ago, I was 19 and that was forever ago. So you can see I spent a lot of time with numbers. So anyway, the hypocrisy of the holidays, how we spend all this time in make-believe. And it isn't even just make-believing the traditions are real or not. It's making believe that we're okay. Disenfranchised grief, when we're sad about things we can't share about. The number of times I was asked as a little girl, I'm my mom, what was wrong? Are you okay? Is everything okay? And I could not answer that question. Sometimes it was so out of my mind, I didn't even think to answer it honestly. But for the most part, I had this giant secret that put a cloud over a lot of things in my life. And I had to spend a lot of time not only convincing others I was fine, but convincing myself that I was fine. And I think it's why I'm such a good endurance athlete, because I can tell myself I'm okay even when I'm not. And then appearances. You know, we want everyone to think certain things about us. If there's one thing that I've learned in my grief and my trauma and all that I've lost is I have nothing to hide. I might be very uncomfortable sharing my stories, but I do know that, that stories are meant to be shared, even the ugly ones. And that I come back to that quote that if it's, if it's okay to share the good things, then it should be equally okay to share the bad. I shouldn't have to walk around with a suitcase 
full of the transgressions of others to maintain some sort of peace, to be able to be happy. So I hope that your Christmas was wonderful. I hope that my Christmas will be wonderful, but <laughs> I hope that my Christmas was wonderful. And I'm looking forward to whatever New Year's Eve may bring. We'll be at Disney, so <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I hope that you were able to give wonderful gifts to the people that you love if you're a practicing Christmaser. If not, I hope you had a wonderfully relaxing, quiet day. I hope that you were able to do good things for yourself and others. I hope that you had a wonderful day on Christmas. I hope that you have a wonderful day on New Year's. But as always, today, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.